I'm Mike Lunsford, and this is Stop Me If You've Heard This, a podcast where we dig deeper into the stories you thought you knew. Tom Petty is one of the best-selling music artists of all time, selling over 90 million records in his four-decade career. He was the frontman for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He was a solo artist, and he was a member of the 80s supergroup The Traveling Wilburys, with the likes of George Harrison, Jeff Lynne, and Roy Orbison. He was a staunch defender of artists' rights and their freedoms. He also cared deeply for his bandmates, road crew, and his fans. This month marks the one-year anniversary of Tom Petty's untimely passing, but the reason he died is almost bittersweet, in a way. His life and career are the topic of this episode of Stop Me If You've Heard This. I was introduced and we both started grooving. She said I dig you, baby, but I got to keep moving. Thomas Earl Petty was born in Gainesville, Florida on October 20th, 1950. His love of music began early, when he was just 10 years old, actually. Uh, His uncle took him to the set of the film Follow That Dream, which was starring the king himself, Elvis Presley. Young Tom was in love. He later described Elvis as glowing and just immediately fell in love with the singer. After he turned from the movie set, he traded a neighborhood friend his slingshot, just his beloved whammo slingshot, as he described it, uh, for a collection of Elvis records. He also stated that other music trailblazers like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones had a huge impact on his life. He recounts that seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan was how he saw his way out of his sleepy little Gainesville, Florida hometown, and the Rolling Stones were his version of punk music. It wasn't long after that that Petty was in a band himself, the bassist for a group that they called Mud Crutch. He met future heartbreakers uh, Mike Campbell and Ben Montench while a part of Mud Crutch, but the band never did much other than play some fun gigs in Gainesville and the surrounding Florida area. There was some shuffling around, a band breakup here and there, and by 1977, Tom, Mike, and Ben Mont put together the first incarnation of what would become Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Their first album was self-titled and spawned a couple of minor hits. The first one, Breakdown, never got really big. However, their second single, American Girl, made the top 40 in the UK and took on a life of its own. It was ranked on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Guitar Songs of All Time, hitting number 76. Now, when we come back, we'll go into the story behind the lyrics of the song, but right now, here is American Girl. to American Girl. Uh, In fact, a lot of people thought that the lyric specifically states uh, there's a desperate girl on a balcony hearing cars rolling by out on 441, um, that it was rumored about a 
college student who committed suicide at the University of Florida because there is a U.S. Route 441 that runs right by one of the residence halls. And this was disputed by Petty himself. He said it's all urban legend. Uh, it's become a huger urban myth down in Florida that's just not at all true. The song has nothing to do with that. But that story really gets around. They really get the whole story. I've even seen magazine articles about that story. Is it true or isn't it true? They could have just called me and found out that it wasn't. <laughs> in the same interview, Peter actually said the song was about him living in California. And the lyric that talks about uh, hearing the ocean crashing over, that was actually the sound of cars going by on the highway because he was living in Encino at the time. And he remembered and directly quoted from him, I remember thinking that this sounded like the ocean to me. That was my ocean, my Malibu. When I heard the waves crash, but it was just cars going by, I think that must have inspired the lyrics. When first released, the song did not chart in the U.S. at all. In fact, it, uh, as previously mentioned, it only hit number 40 in the U.K. charts. But it was re-released in 1994, where it made number 9 on the top 100. That moderate success that they had with their first album, the self-titled album, uh, really catapulted Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers into the next level because their second album, You're Gonna Get It, was the band's first top 40 album and it featured singles like I Need to Know and Listen to Our Heart. Their third album, which followed up just the year after, called Damn the Torpedoes, quickly went platinum, selling nearly 2 million copies and it included songs like Refugee, which you can hear in the background right now, also Here Comes My Girl and Don't Do Me Like That. We're going to listen to Refugee, which is off their third album, Damn the Torpedoes, and a little story about how Damn the Torpedoes even started. recording of Damn the Torpedoes, Tom Petty was in a dispute with his record company, originally signed to ABC Records, who was bought out by MCA Records uh, and just automatically brought his contract over, and Petty wasn't happy with this. He had no say in it. He refused to be transferred to another record label without his consent, and in fact, in a power move, he actually declared bankruptcy so that he could renegotiate his terms for this album, for Damn the Torpedoes, and actually got signed by a subsidiary of MCA Records, uh, Backstreet Records. And this is a pattern that we saw throughout Tom Petty's career. And we'll go into that a little bit more as it goes further into our episode of Stop Me If You Heard This. Tom Petty was an outspoken proponent for artistic control when it came to his music and how 
he had a say in how things were done. And we'll go into a little bit of that um, as we move into this, but we're going to go ahead and play another one of his songs right now. It's off his fourth album, Hard Promises. The song is called The Waiting, and there's another excellent story about Tom Petty defending artists' rights about this album, too, which we will talk about following this song. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Petty stood up for his rights when it came to uh, what he was allowed to do musically, how his contract was treated, those sorts of things. And after having his battle with ABC Records and MCA Records and fighting for himself, he made a name for himself when it came to defending himself. This album, Hard Promises, when it came out in 1981, was slated to be set with a new pricing model that MCA was using uh, at instead of $8.98 an album it was $9.98 an album uh, this was the so-called superstar pricing that was a dollar more than the usual album and Petty voices opinions and objected vehemently about this stating that it was a matter of principle and he said if we don't take a stand one of these days records are going to be $20 he said and refused to release the record and really stood his ground on this one. And MCA eventually agreed to the $8.98 an album. And that landed another win for Tom Petty from, and for musicians everywhere. And it proved that there were viable ways of pushing back against profit-minded labels. Sometimes there's a communication breakdown, Tom Petty said. And when that happens, you just have to stand up for yourself. Petty's next release was 1982's Long After Dark. This was noticeable as it was the last album to include bassist Ron Blair, who was replaced by Howie Epstein, who would do a lot of backing vocals on Heartbreaker Records going forward. His contributions became integral to the sound of the group. Uh, Long After Dark made it to number nine on the Billboard Top 200 and was the 37th most popular album of the year. However, it was the 1985 release, Southern Accents, that is what many of the MTV generation, such as myself, remember as their first interaction with Tom Petty. The video was a staple on MTV with its Alice in Wonderland imagery, with Tom playing the Mad Hatter and eventually turning Alice into a piece of cake and eating her. Um, But that's burned into all of our minds and our collective pop culture memories. And the song is Don't Come Around Here No More, which we're listening to right now. Don't come around here no more 
after the incredible success of Don't Come Around Here No More and uh, the album Southern Accents, uh, Petty and the Heartbreakers, they did one more album together, and that was 1987's Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. But it was at this point that Tom Petty tried to do some other things. Uh, the group was called the Traveling Wilburys, and it included some greats like Roy Orbison, Jeff Lynne, uh, again, the Tom Petty, of course, and then Bob Dylan as well. And the idea for the Traveling Wilburys came from George Harrison and producer Jeff Lynne. Jeff Lynne is also a member of Electric Light Orchestra. Um, but Lynn became a record producer and was working with George Harrison on his album Cloud Nine, which uh, had some pretty big hits. And when asked what he was going to do to follow it up, he said, I'd really like to do next is do an album with me and some of my mates. Uh, it's this new group I got in mind. It's called the Traveling Wilburys. I'd like to do an album with them. And then later we can all do our own albums again. So just kind of a one off. And having Bob Dylan included in the group, that sounds kind of silly. Like, oh, Bob Dylan, he's such a big name. You have to remember at this point in Bob Dylan's career, he was actually at a really low point. And he was experiencing an artistic and commercial low point. And George Harrison, former Beatle George Harrison, just coming off of the success of that album, Cloud Nine, his support of Dylan was very, very important. So it actually really helped kind of resurrect his career. Uh, Tom Petty just was absolutely into this group. And really, the genesis of the group, too, was that all these guys could get together and jam, and they all had a really, really good time together. In fact, their love of the English comedy troupe Monty Python is kind of what binded them all together. And they were all just blown away because Roy Orbison, apparently, had an incredible gift for impersonations, and he would recite entire sketches by Monty Python. And for Petty... Roy Orbison was one of his heroes and he grew up listening to George Harrison and listening to the songs written by Bob Dylan so this was a chance for him to work with some of his heroes uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to play a couple of songs from the Traveling Wilburys and then we're going to jump right back into uh, Tom Petty stuff but this stuff is just of note because who would pass up an opportunity to work with some of their idols and heroes uh, the first song that was big for the Traveling Wilburys that was going to be Handle With Care which we're going to go ahead and listen to right now Beat up and battered around Been sent up and I've been shot down You're the best thing that I've ever found Handle me with her Reputations changeable Situations tolerable But baby you're adorable I'm so tired of being lonely I still have some love to give Won't you show me that you really care Everybody's got somebody to lean on Put your body Next to mine The Traveling Wilburys Project came together in April of 1988, all kind of by happenstance. George Harrison was in Los Angeles to oversee the filming of a production he was doing called Checking Out, and Warner Brothers Records asked for a B-side to a single that he had um, from the Cloud Nine album. And he was out at a meal with Jeff Lynne and Roy Orbison and asked, hey, 
Jeff Lynn, you want to help me record this track? And hey, Roy, why don't you come hang out at the session? And they all agreed. But the problem was that they couldn't find a studio at short notice except for the garage studio uh, in Malibu that Bob Dylan happened to have, um, which just shows how cool it is for all of these guys to be connected the way they were. And how did Tom Petty get involved? Well, he happened to have a guitar that George Harrison had let him borrow. And he went over to Petty's house to get the guitar back and was like, hey, by the way, Tom Petty, you want to come hang out with Roy Orbison and Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynne and me and do this cool thing? And from there, they just started putting this track together. And the title of the song, Handle With Care, came from a label on a box in uh, Bob Dylan's garage. And they recorded all of this in one session, sent it off to Warner Brothers Records, and they were like, this is incredible. This can't just be a B-side. So they ended up turning it into an entire album. So as they were getting to record the Traveling Wilburys Volume 1 album, Bob Dylan was kind of put on this pedestal because everybody just idolized him because he was kind of the, the one that everybody looked up to. Uh, in this whole process and Tom Petty recalled specifically that as a friend but also as an avowed fan of Dylan's uh, George Harrison felt the need to clear the air on the first day by saying to him we know that you're Bob Dylan and everything but we're going to treat you and talk to you just like we would anybody else and Bob Dylan replied well that's great believe it or not I'm in awe of you guys and it's the same for me it was just two months after the release of the album in fact in December of 1988 that Roy Orbison passed away of a heart attack and in tribute to him the video that the band did for their second single end of the line actually shows Roy Arberson's famous guitar in a rocking chair as the rest of the group play along with a photo of him in the background well it's all right riding around in the breeze well it's all right if you live the life you please well it's all the untimely passing of Roy Orbison they had opportunities to replace him with other musicians and they refused they, they couldn't replace Roy Orbison because all of them were just so in awe of him in fact when they had decided to put this whole Traveling Wilburys thing together uh, back in the April of 1988 they actually went to go see Roy Orbison play a show at the Celebrity Theater and before he went on they asked him to join the band and he agreed and then he went on stage and just did a lights out show right and Petty described it as him and Jeff Wynn and George Harrison sitting there kind of punching each other saying, he's in our band too. He's in our band too. So excited that they were going to have Roy Orbison as part of their group. After the Traveling Wilburys albums, Tom Petty released Full Moon Fever in 1989, which... Honestly, when you're looking at it, this is probably the most Tom Petty album he ever released because three of his biggest songs are on this album. I Won't Back Down, Free Fallen, and Running Down and Dream. And it was his first 
solo album and name only, really, because there were several Heartbreakers that were on it, um, and he had a lot of big name musicians that helped with it. So Mike Campbell uh, helped co-produce the album. So did uh, Jeff Lynn of Electric Light Orchestra, one of his uh, co-contributors from Traveling Wilburys. But also he had uh, Roy Orbison and George Harrison involved in it, too. In fact, Ringo Starr appears on drums in the video for I Won't Back Down. So a lot of different influences. And I think that this is the most Tom Petty of all of his albums because it has three of his signature songs. So this really kind of helped create what everybody thinks of when they think of Tom Petty. So we're going to play one of my favorite songs of his, and that's going to be Free Fallen. She's a good girl Loves her mama Loves Jesus In America too She's a good girl She's crazy about elves Loves horses And her boyfriend too And it's a long day Living in Reseda There's a freeway Running through the yard And I'm a bad boy Cause I don't even miss her I'm a bad boy For breaking her heart When I chose to do a Stop Me If You've Heard This episode about Tom Petty, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to include all of his music because he has such an incredible catalog. But I wanted to make sure that I was telling these incredible stories. And one of the stories that I wanted to touch on was his views on artistic control. And I had talked about this a little bit earlier, how he had fought with his record companies to make sure that he kept control of his art. And he continued to do this throughout his career. In 1987, Petty sued tire company B.F. Goodrich for $1 million for using a song very similar to his song Mary's New Car in a TV commercial. What was funny about this was the ad agency actually reached out to him and sought permission to use Petty's song and he refused. So they just ended up doing a song that sounded like it anyways. And he ended up getting a judge to file a temporary restraining order prohibiting further use of the ad and they actually settled out of court for it. But that's the thing about Tom Petty is he was only like that with these big corporations. When it came to other musicians, he was actually very relaxed and very chill about it. Uh, in fact, the song Mary Jane's Last Dance uh, that he released, um, there were many in the music industry that accused the Red Hot Chili Peppers of having taken liberties with that song with their uh, single Danny California, which was released in 2006. Petty told Rolling Stone magazine, I seriously doubt that there's any negative intent there, uh, meaning that the Red Hot Chili Peppers didn't mean to do anything negative. And a lot of rock and roll songs sound alike. Ask Chuck Berry. For instance, the Strokes took American Girl from for their song Last Night, and I saw an interview where they actually said that they admitted it. That made me laugh out loud. I was like, okay, good for you. If someone took my song note for note and stole it maliciously, then maybe I'd sue. But I don't believe in law lawsuits much. I think there are enough frivolous lawsuits in this country without people fighting over pop songs. So he, he kind of got it. He got where the intent was coming from this and none of them were really trying to do anything other than play music. And honestly, it, it, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, so maybe he was taking it in that way. 
and even with bigger things in 2015 uh, Sam Smith's song Stay With Me uh, the writers of that song admitted that there were similarities between it and I Won't Back Down in fact Petty and Jeff Lynne were awarded 12 point five percent of the royalties for the song and their names were added to the ASCAP song credit. Petty clarified that he didn't believe that Smith was even plagiarizing him. He said, all of my years of songwriting have shown me these things can happen. Most times you catch it and before it gets out the studio door, but in this case it got by. Sam's people were very understanding of our predicament and we easily came to an agreement. So again, not holding anybody horribly accountable for something like this when it came to music because to him, it's just music. As I promised at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we were going to touch on Tom Petty's untimely death and how it was almost bittersweet in a way and kind of touching. And it spoke volumes of the type of person he was. Um, And here's what his wife, Dana, had to say. Uh, He was told that he needed to have the hip surgery uh, and his doctor recommended that it needed to be done, uh, but he kept putting it off. Uh, He would do anything to help anyone, his bandmates, the crew, the fans. And that's why he did that last tour with a fractured hip. He was adamant. He found out a few days before the tour was going to start and that he had emphysema. Then he said that he was relying on the drugs on the road to keep his pain under control, but was looking forward to not needing them anymore. That's why he wouldn't go to the hospital when his hip broke. Uh, he had in his mind, and it was his last tour, and he owed it to his longtime crew for decades, some of them, and his fans. He owed them. Dana said that Petty was in a good mood the day before his death, excited about the future, saying he had those three shows in L.A., and the day before he died, he was pounding his chest going, I'm on top of the world. Never had he been so proud of himself, so happy, so looking forward to the future. And then he's gone. All of this was for his fans, for his bandmates, for his crew. He put off all of that, went through all of that pain, self-medicated himself just to get through it, just for all of his friends and family and, and fans and that's just incredibly touching and moving that somebody cared that deeply about his art and his craft that eventually it cost him his life because of it but honestly I don't think he would have wanted to have it any other way and I'm sure right now him, George Harrison and Roy Orbison are playing a ridiculous session right now in heaven So that's going to do it for this episode of Stop Me If You Heard This um, about the life and times of Tom Petty. Uh, for my resources for this one, I used what anybody would use. I, I looked up uh, Tom Petty on Wikipedia. Um, great Wikipedia article, but also uh, Rolling Stone has a treasure trove of incredible articles about Tom Petty, about his life, about his death. Uh, that's where I got the information uh, about what his wife said, what uh, Dana Petty had said after his passing, but also his biographer, Warren Zanes, 
has incredible stories about him. There's one, in fact, about um, his love of Maxwell House coffee. Um, Tom Petty was just unpretentious, and he liked what he liked, and he did what he did without worrying about what other people were going to think, which that allegory that Zane says in the article in Rolling Stone about his love of Maxwell House coffee, he went and bought himself those bun automatic coffee makers that you see in diners so that he could get that same coffee and replicate it at home. Tom Petty liked what he liked, and just like one of his most famous songs says, he won't back down, and he never did. He stood by what he believed, he stood by what he liked, and that's why he was our focal point for this episode of Stop Me If You've Heard This. But my name is Mike Lunsford, and thank you so much for listening. Oh